Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So many of you know that my wife Angie is out of town. She got to go to a wedding for her childhood best friend, which means that I am uh, this week solo parenting uh, my three boys. Uh, if you don't know me, I have three boys. They are fantastic. They are 10, 8, and 3, uh, and they are 100% boy. And so um, I have been solo parenting them. But my parents uh, were gracious enough last night to, to give me a break, to give me a chance to uh, work on stuff that I needed to work on, to do all those things. And so I packed up the kids and I, you know, I got all the proper number of diapers, right? I got, I added wipes. You know what? I'll throw in some extra wipes just in case. I'll get all the bedding for all of the kids. I remembered the cot that I, I mean, I was doing all the dad things. I was doing it all right. And I was honestly pretty proud of myself because I've got this on lockdown. I can do this. I'm doing a good job. And I was really excited about myself. So we packed the kids up into the car. And we start driving down the street. And we get about five or six blocks from the house. And my middle son, Owen, turns to me and says, Dad, something's wrong with Elliot, my littlest one, my three-year-old. And so my eyes come off the road for just a minute. They flick up to the rearview mirror. And there is Elliot sitting in the back seat, wide-eyed and covered in blood. <laughs> I panic. <laughs> What is, why is there blood striping his face, running up his arm? What is going on? So, of course, I immediately pull into the next place I can, and I hop out of the car, and I am freaking out. And, you know, one of my sons asks, what's going on? And I'm like, everything is going on. Leave me alone. I'm dealing with it. I mean, I went like zero to Hulk in like no time flat. So I'm like, I'm cleaning his hands. And like, I can't find any cut. And I'm asking him, did you get hurt? And he's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Not helping. <laughs> does your hand hurt? I don't know. It's got blood on it. So I'm like, you know, trying to find wet wipes, trying to clean them up, trying to figure it out. And, and Owen says, I think it came out of his nose. And I said, what? What are you talking about? I said, Elliot, were you picking your nose? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> he had picked his nose so hard <laughs> that he had given himself a nosebleed and then didn't know what to do with all of this blood and so began to apply it <laughs> last of the Mohican style to himself I went from like feeling like I was the best dad of all time to very quickly being incredibly angry about this situation. Why? Why did I go from zero to 60? Why did I yell at Owen, who literally through this process was absolutely the most helpful person in the car? He's the one who figured it out. That, that he was bleeding. He's the one who figured out where he was bleeding from. And yet I was yelling at him. What was going on? Why was that what was happening in my life and in my heart? Yeah, because I was freaked out. 
right? But there was something else. There was something else that was going on. I wanted to be absolutely in control of the situation. I wanted to be super dad. I wanted everybody to think, wow, he can take care of three children all on his own. And they had vegetables once while, his mom, while mom was gone. I wanted everybody to think of just the way I was. I can take care of kids. I can be just fine. I can do it all by myself. I wanted to be in control. I wanted both hands on the wheel, all the kids over to the grandparents in perfect order. But kids pick their noses. But things go wrong. Tires go flat. The world is an imperfect place. Things break all the time. But my response, that angry response, was rooted in my anxiety and my insecurity. What if I'm not a good enough dad? What, what, what if like, my wife didn't have the confidence to leave me at home with these three kids? I've got to prove myself. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the pastor. I'm like a super Christian. I, I need to do it all right. What if I'm not enough? You see, whether it's with our kids, our jobs, our relationships, all of us, in one way or another, struggle with control and anxiety. We struggle with those things. We live our lives trying to control, trying to account for every possible outcome, trying to plan three steps ahead, playing 4D chess, getting it all right, knowing, well, if this falls through, then I'll have that, and if that doesn't work, I'll do this. Got it under control. You know what? We're getting that 3.5% cost of living adjustment. We're going to take that and we're going to apply that to that new financial thing we're going to do. We're going to, we, we all sort of serve and try to figure that out. Or, or we just sort of over-prepare ourselves through indifference and apathy. You know what? Everything's going to fall apart. It's all going to go wrong. Everything that can go wrong will. So I'm just going to prepare myself for that. And so we live our lives in this tension, this sort of back and forth between either trying to control everything or being indifferent and apathetic and just assuming everything is going to go wrong. But that's a tough way to live. It's tough for us to live just bouncing back and forth between control, anxiety, and despair. But for most of us, whether we're a Christian or not, that is how we live. Bouncing back and forth. I can control everything. Nope. Guess I can't. Gosh, everything is awful and I should just give up. Maybe there's a glimmer of hope. Oh no, what if that hope is bad? Now I'm anxious. We sort of bounce back and forth. Control. Anxiety. Depression. And so our hearts are constantly living in this tumult. And what this all comes from, where this struggle comes from, is the fact that we struggle to believe that God is in control and that he is good. Functionally, most of us live our lives as if those things aren't true. Now, many of us who are here who are Christians, if you were asked, is God in control, you would say yes. And especially those of us who are, you know, known to be Presbyterians, right? Is God in control? We even have a good word. We even have a good Presbyterian word for this. We use the word sovereignty. That's a good word, right? Is God sovereign? Is God in control of everything? And most of us would quickly affirm, yes, he is. And is God good? 
Yes, he is, right? There's even that, that classic callback that many churches use. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. We can say that out loud. We can call it back. We can respond in that way. But let's be honest, the way that we live our lives, with us trying to be in control, with us struggling with anxiety, is due to the fact that most of us functionally do not believe that God is in control, and we do not believe that God is good. And that, at its root is so many of the things that causes our disordered affections, that causes our hardships. And as Peter begins to finish his letter, as Peter writes just these last few sentences to us from his epistle, he anticipates this, because this is not new. Humans have struggled with anxiety and control for as long as we have lived. And so Peter writes to us about these things. So I'd like you to stand up And I'm going to read the last eight verses of Peter's first letter. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago, but intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So we struggle to believe that God is in control, that he is good. This is something that most of us can sympathize with. And as Peter finishes it up, he's talking about just this. He begins by telling us to be humble and to cast our cares on God. This is a continuation of this theme that we've been talking about for the last four or five weeks, really since Easter, that Peter is saying that that the pattern of Jesus and the pattern of the Christian life is that suffering leads to glory. That struggle, that strain, that submission leads to exaltation. Or to put it another way, that the way to go up is to go down. The way upward is the downward path. Which is what he means, which is what he's talking about when he talks about humility. Humility comes from believing that God is in control and I am not. Now, most of us would go, yes, that's that's true. God is in control and I am not. Except what happens when things don't go your way? Parents, what happens when your kids don't get into the school that you want them to get into? 
or maybe your kids are a bit older. Maybe they don't respond to you the way that you hope they respond to you when you try to speak to them. What happens when you struggle to get pregnant? What happens when you can't seem to find a companion? What do you do? Most of us don't humble ourselves. Most of us don't attribute things to God. And we don't wait on Him. But the essence of humility is that God is in control and that you're not. And our pride comes when we start believing the opposite of that. Our pride comes when we start saying that I'm in control. That I'm going to be able to take care of things. That, that, that my charm, my gifts, my pedigree, or my degree make me worthy and make me be able to take care of this situation. And what happens? What happens when your charm isn't enough? What happens when your grit isn't enough? What happens when you aren't able to hustle your way to where you want to go? For most of us, we flop swing in the far other direction. When we can't control the situation through whatever our giftedness is, through whatever our go-to means of control is, when we can't do that, we panic and we get anxious because now we're out of control. Now I can't do this all on my own. Now I need someone else. Now things are not going to the way, go the way that I want to. And so we slide back and forth between being proud, wanting to be in control, and to being anxious. Which is why Peter sets this up the way he does. He tells us to humble ourselves, but then he also tells us to cast our anxieties on God. These two things together are that back and forth swing that most of us live in. And you see, this is something that plagues not just those of us who are Christians. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you can see this in your life too, probably. This, this desire to control, this desire to make sure things work out the way you want them to work out, and when they don't, beginning to panic because they're not. This is something that affects us both Christian and not Christian alike. And so what do we do in response? For some of us, our response is to double down. It's to double down on whatever it is we're good at. You know what? I'm pretty smart. I can probably figure out the situation. Oh, it didn't go my way. Back to the drawing board. This time I'm going to work harder. Maybe get a Red Bull. Maybe get a, one of the other energy drinks. And I'm going to, by the way, the fact that, the fact that bang energy drinks say super creatine on them, um, I can't help but think of idiocracy with uh, Brondo has super mega extra caffeine. Um, and it just, Anyway, why are we putting super in? Never mind. But what do we do? We drink an energy drink, we work harder, and we double down on our problem. We double down on whatever our giftedness is. And then guess what happens? It doesn't work. And so what do we do? We get more anxious. Ah, I have a solution. The past few times, I didn't work hard enough. This time, I will work even harder. And we, become, we get into this endless cycle where we're going down that. Perhaps that's the way you approach it. For others of us, we try to approach it by, by letting it all roll, up, roll off our back. Whether we are Christians or not, 
We try to control or, or let everything happen. When we get anxious, when we want to control, we just sort of try to let it go. We try to be very, very zen about it. We might even come up with a mantra. I'm reminded of the episode of uh, Seinfeld where George's dad uh, has a heart problem. And in order to deal with this heart problem, the doctor tells him he needs less stress. He needs to be less stressed about what's going on. And perhaps the best way to experience less stress is to have something you say when you're stressed to sort of let it out. So he teaches George's dad, um, played by Jerry Stiller, Penn Stiller's dad, by the way, um, to say whenever things go bad, serenity now. Well, you can imagine exactly where this goes. The episode, by the end of the episode, everybody is freaked out and is screaming serenity now at one another. When we try to just ignore our problems, we try to say, you know what? I want to be in control or, I, or I'm feeling anxious. I'm just going to pretend that it doesn't work and shove it down and just say serenity now will be okay. Church, Christians who are here this morning, we can do the same thing as that. When we don't truly believe in the goodness of God and just say in the face of our problems, God is good, when that's not something that is deep down rooted inside of us, when it's just something that we say, all we're doing is using Jesus' name in the place of serenity now. You see, we have to be changed. We have to be formed on a deeper level than just saying Christian things. Than just looking at your child bloodied in the back seat going, God is in control. No, something has to change deeper down inside of us. Something has to change more fundamentally to who we are. And this is exactly what Peter is encouraging us to. Wedged in between these commands to cast our anxiety on him and to be humble is the fact that God has a mighty hand. Now, most of us read over that and say, yes, God is in control. But we might miss what Peter is referencing. Again and again and again, throughout the book of Exodus, when it's described, how does God lead his people? He leads them with a mighty hand. How did God part the Red Sea? He parted it with his mighty hand. He is referencing this story that comes from the Old Testament, that comes from the first part of the Bible. And he says that, that God leads us by his mighty hand. Now think about this. Some of you may not be as familiar with the Bible of others, so I just want to tell you this story. God has freed his people from their slavery to Egypt. The Pharaoh has let them go. And so the people pick up in mass in the middle of the night, and they start marching from Egypt towards the promised land. Except there's a big old body of water on their way there. And Pharaoh has decided that he's changed his mind. That you know what? A million free slave laborers is not something that he wants to give up. So he is pursuing them. And now all of a sudden, they come to the Red Sea. There are mountains on both sides of them. The Red Sea in front of them. And Pharaoh and his army of chariots closing in behind them. Serenity now. What are they going to do? In that case, what they're forced to do is be humble and cast their cares 
on God. Because what could they do in that scenario? They have no weapons. They're absolutely outmatched militarily. And they are trapped. What they had to do was trust in God. They're in a scenario where they have no control and high anxiety. What are they forced to do? Should they just say some nice Christianese mantras? No, they have to truly trust that God is going to take care of them. And he did. God split open the Red Sea so that they could walk across on dry land. He did it with his mighty hand. And so for some of us, we need to begin to see that God has worked in the past, that the Old Testament is, among other things, stories of God's faithfulness. But then we also need to recount our stories, the ways that God has been personally faithful to us to see again and again that he is in control, that he is good, and begin to lean into that trust of him. Not in a surfacey way, not by just repeating some mantra or saying some nice theological words. No, no, no. By genuinely trusting in him, the God who brought his people out of Egypt will bring you through the struggles that you're in. But the mighty hand of God is not just a hand that is meant to save. It is also a hand of wrath because the same mighty hand of God that opened up the Red Sea for the people of Israel was the same hand that closed it down when the people of Egypt came. And so there's a warning to us. There's a warning to us about what happens when we turn and stop trusting in God. And so our call is to trust in God. To begin to lean into his goodness. To begin to lean into his control. But what happens to you and to I, oftentimes when we hear this, is we say, ah, yes, okay, good. So I'm just not going to do anything. I'm going to get out my lawn chair. I'm going to go to the beach. Well, how are you going to make money? I'm just going to let go and let God. Well, who's going to take care of your children? God will take care of them. Now, of course, those are over-the-top illustrations. But how many times is the idea that we need to trust more and more in the goodness, the kindness, and the control of God lead us to think that we're meant to be inactive? That we don't have to do anything. That we don't have to work. No, no, no. And Peter anticipates that. He says, no, no, look. It's not just let go and let God. You also have to be sober-minded. You have to be thoughtful. You have to be anticipating the fact that God is not the only one concerned with your spiritual life. But there is an accuser. And when he says Satan in this passage, when he says the devil, that's the word that he's using. Because that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to accuse us. He wants to point the finger. He wants to go, ah, yes, but look at what they did. And so Peter's call for us is to be vigilant, to be sober-minded. The idea is, if you are a shepherd, how thoughtful do you have to be when you know that wolves are on the prowl? When wolves are on the prowl, you have to be vigilant. It's not hard for Satan to tempt us. It's not hard for Satan to accuse us when we struggle fundamentally with even believing that God is good. When we struggle fundamentally that truly believing 
that God is in control. No, no. Our call is to resist, to stand firm in what God has said. This isn't just standing firm by having all of the right theological doctrines. This isn't standing firm just by being able to quote the right things and do all the right things. No, no, no. This is the confident rest that comes from knowing and truly believing that God is good and that he is in control. And so the suffering and hardship that we go through to believe that, the groaning of our pains, the suffering that it takes to believe that, is something Peter knows well. And Peter says, listen, this suffering is just for a little bit of time. The glory that this suffering leads to is forever. Peter is contrasting this idea because most of us, most of us, even if we feel like, oh my gosh, that was a short week, right? It's June. I don't know about you, but Christmas does not seem like it was six months ago. And Christmas was six months ago. Things seem to go fast. But, but God says, look, you are looking at time in the wrong way. That time here on earth, that our time on earth is so short when compared to the length of eternity. That yes, this is going to be hard. Life is going to be hard. We are going to have struggles. Some of those struggles are the day-to-day struggles of all life that are common to all of us as humans. But some of these are the struggles that it is for Christians who are trying to live out their faith. We're going to experience both if we're a believer in Jesus. And those struggles are going to happen, but church, they're going to be short. When you compare them to eternity. And we need to begin to train for this. There was a, one of my favorite bands when I was a teenager was named Training for Utopia. And I love that idea of what we're doing here on earth is training us for what is to come. And this is why we do so many things at City Church. If you, some of you may notice, um, so we do this thing at City Church called Community Bible Reading, CBR. And when we do our CBR, there are four boxes that we sort of address and answer with every passage that we read. Who is God? What is this passage telling us about the attributes and actions of God? And then what sins do I find in this passage that I need to confess? And then the third box that we write down is, where do I see Jesus and the goodness of his redemption? And then finally, how is God equipping me to go out and be changed by this? This is something that we repeat every week. Incidentally, those four questions are sort of the four pillars of the gospel. Who is God? What is our need for God? What has Jesus done to meet that need? And how are we changed? Oh, by the way, that's also the way that our service here at City Church is set up on purpose. We begin by worshiping who God is. Then we take time to confess our sins. Then we begin to hear who Jesus is and what he has done for us, both through word and through action with the bread and the wine of communion. And then we are sent out, we are changed, we are made new and sent out to live that life. All of these things are intentionally, over and over again, ways that we are training ourselves for the world that is to come. And all of these things are the way that we begin to grow in trusting the goodness of God by rehearsing it over and over again. We begin to trust that God is in control by reminding ourselves that it is true. And so God is at work in and around you and around the world. He says it's not just you who are suffering. Christians 
in other parts of the world are as well. That was true then and it is true now. This is not just about us. Christianity is not an individual sport. This is a team sport and the team is bigger and broader, more beautiful and more diverse than you imagine. And so we come to this knowing that God is at work, but he cannot do us ultimate harm because God is ultimately the one who is restoring, who is confirming our faith more and more in us. God is ultimately the one strengthening us. He is the one who is establishing our hearts in him. And so as we see this, we remember that we don't do the things that we do so that we get God's attention. No, God is the one who is at work. What our call to do is to trust, to believe in the goodness of God, to believe in what God is doing and that he is in control. But that's hard. It's hard for us to believe that God is good and that God is in control. We still struggle to believe it. And so Peter reminds us as he tells us who helped him write the letter and who is with him. And he says that weird thing about the church or the she who is at Babylon. He's being kind of coded um, and talking about the church that is in Rome, which is where he is ministering at the time. But we struggle. And he tells us then, finally, to stand firm in what we've learned. He is pointing us to Jesus because Jesus is the antidote to our pride and our anxiety. He submitted to the mighty hand of God, but not just the part that opened the Red Sea, also the part that closed it. Jesus took the flood of God's wrath that you deserved for your pride, for your unbelief in him being in control. Jesus took that on himself on the cross. He submitted himself to not just the mighty hand of God that saves, but the mighty hand of God that judges. Jesus took your judgment for you. And he did that on the cross. Hebrews tells us the reason that Jesus stayed on the cross. He was God. He could have jumped down. He could have cast lightning from the sky. He could have brought a storm. He could have done a thousand things. But what kept him there, Hebrews tells us, was the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? Or more so, who was the joy that was set before Jesus? City Church, it was you. Jesus' love for you is not some general, impersonal cloud that's somewhere out there. Jesus' love for you is personal. He knows you by name. He calls you by name. He died for you by name. Because that's how much he cares for you. Why can you humble yourself? Can you set aside your desire for control? Because he cares for you. Why can you cast your anxieties on him? Because he loves you. So what does this look like? What does this look like for you and me? For for most of us, as we hear this, this should lift the burden of trying to always be in control off of our shoulders. That feeling where your tongue is pressed hard into the roof of your mouth as you grit out what you are doing, don't have to. Jesus is good. Jesus cares for you. Jesus loves you. 
You don't have to be in control because he is. And so we begin to rest. When things don't work out at our office the way we want them to, we rest. When our kids don't respond to our discipline the way we want them to, we rest. When, when the relationship that we've been praying for just doesn't come, we trust. When our kids don't speak to us, don't do the things, aren't going the way that we want them to in school, we trust. And as we trust more and more, we begin to stand firm in the faith that God is good, that He is in control. So you don't have to be. Let's pray.